Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I am your host, Grayson Brulte. Move at the speed of digital. With SAE's OnCue Digital Standards System, engineers have rapid digital access to the mobility standards and data they need to move the world forward. Integration is key. That's why the OnCue Digital Standards System uses a secure cloud-based system to simplify workflows and connect engineers to what matters. Click the link in the show notes and explore the possibilities of digital. On today's episode, I sat down with Jurgen Pedersen, President and CEO, and Amanda Scroy, PhD, Principal Research Scientist at RE Squared Robotics, to discuss how robotics are preserving and amplifying human expertise, the ways robotics are solving for safety across industries, from defense to construction, and the human capabilities demonstrated by robots of the future. And away we go. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Super excited to have you here. Your company is doing really incredible, wonderful things throughout robotics that's having a really positive impact on society. So I can't wait to dive into that. But Jorgen, I'd love to ask you to start kick it off. When did you first become interested in robotics? With the uh, thought of uh, revealing my age here, uh, I, I think it was Star Wars. <laughs> In the uh, 70s and 80s, that, that really planted the seed of, you know, the interest in robotics. I think that did for several people. But the first time that I walked into the Field Robotics Center at Carnegie Mellon University and saw real robots for the first time, I saw planetary robots that could uh, walk. I saw self-driving cars uh, called NavLab that could drive across the country. I saw Demeter that was a walking robot that could go down into a volcano. I was hooked. And that's really what sealed the deal for me and said, this is where uh, I need to be. Star Wars has had a positive impact on society. You have individuals like me that couldn't get over the incredible music and all the way that they did the soundtrack for it. And you have other individuals like yourself that get hooked on the robotics. So it's a clear statement that Star Wars has had a profound positive impact on society. I totally agree. Yeah, it's inspirational on multiple levels. Amanda, how did you first become interested in robotics? Yeah, I definitely have a different story. So I started working purely on the software side. I was doing computer vision for biometric applications in graduate school. And then as I moved into industry, I got to write a lot of really cool code, but I never got to see my code in action. I would kind of hand it to the people who did the testing, and then I would hear about how well or how well it didn't work, and then I would make the changes. So this desire brought me to my first uh, ground robotics company and eventually to RE Squared, where I was able to both work on the computer vision, the perception, the autonomy capabilities, and also do the testing on the manipulators. So being able to write the code and actually see it in action is really what brought me fulfillment and like brought me to my interest in robotics. Wow. So I have to ask, how does a robot see? Is that through the perception? Yeah, so perception is a big umbrella. It covers the sensors that you use, the cameras, essentially. And then you use different algorithms that are often thought of like as the machine learning or the artificial intelligence to tell the robot where an object is and what's in the scene, what's around it. So you're, you're doing all the cool things. <laughs> I like to think so, but the hardware is pretty cool too. RE2 Robotics was spun out of Carnegie Mellon, one of the most world-renowned universities has graduated some of the smartest people in the world. I'd love to know, how was RE2 developed and incubated inside of Carnegie Mellon prior to being spun out as an independent company? 
Yeah. So after graduating uh, Carnegie Mellon, I, I, I decided to work for the university. In particular, I was one of the original 12 people at Carnegie Mellon's National Robotics Engineering Center. And I, in fact, I was on the front lawn of the building uh, while they were still constructing the building in 1995. And back then, it was actually called the National Robotics Engineering Consortium, which uh, had the goal of incubating robotics companies. Uh, and uh, over my five years at, uh, working at the NREC, National Robotics Engineering Center, I witnessed many companies get uh, spun up uh, and tried to take robotics into the world. Uh, honestly, uh, not many of them succeeded because back in 1996 and in the, you know the late 90s, the world really wasn't ready for robotics yet. Uh, I think the world is ready now. But uh, the the nice thing is, while at the NREC, I was able to grow not only technically, but I was exposed to a lot of different businesses. I was exposed to Caterpillar, uh, Joy Mining, uh, Case New Holland, and it helped me gain an appreciation for market needs, which is really a piece that a lot of ro roboticists forget. Uh, so having that dual exposure of technical and business under one roof uh, is really what gave me the confidence to, uh, in 2001, to found RE Squared with the mindset of let's get out there and, and help, help humans. I'm happy you mentioned the, the business aspect of robotics because you can build the, the world's best robots, but if there's if there's not a business plan, unfortunately, you're you're not going to succeed outside of academia. So that's really wonderful to hear. And Amanda, you've got this incredible background in computer vision perception. Why RE squared? Why did you join in 2018? Was it Jorgen's vision of of building robotics with a business and going into multiple industries? Yeah, I mean, I can remember Jurgen and I sitting down to lunch in 2018 and talking about, you know, his big picture for how to move their manipulators from teleoperation to autonomy. And I had this background in ground autonomy, both on the perception and the general architecture side. And, you know, I did a lot of thinking and a lot of research, and I saw that RA Squared had this great track record in building successful manipulators for teleoperation. And I saw a huge opportunity for like my personal growth to step step uh, step up and take a leadership role and help the company grow in the autonomy direction, uh, and then also this opportunity for some major product growth at RE Squared. So that that's what really brought me there. How do you transition robotics from teleoperated to autonomy? Yeah, so teleoperation is where the human is in the loop. The human is telling the robot what to do and how to move. And in order to do that, you have to map the robot motion to huma, human motion in some way. Um, this mapper can, uh, can then be used to replace the human with artificial intelligence and ultimately perception and trajectory planning. So those are the pieces of the puzzle that I really brought to the table and have helped build out at RE Squared since 2018. So you have this incredible background in teleoperations, which RE Squared has. You're working on achieving full autonomy. When you eventually achieve full autonomy for your robotic systems, what happens to teleoperations? Do they still play in a critical, let's say, a mission critical role in the de in the deployment? Yeah. So I think teleoperation will still be a critical capability in terms of safety and comfort of the user. So users in the foreseeable future are going to be monitoring our autonomous mobile manipulation systems. Um, this is going to provide them 
comfort, you know, as they get used to the system, if they have a teleoperation capability and can get a physical feel for what the manipulator is trying to do. And this also improves the safety of our manipulation systems. So for example, if the manipulator is trying to do some action where maybe it gets into a non-optimal situation, the user can pause its um, autonomous capabilities and then take over control to back the manipulator out of that non-optimal situation. So it's really uh, building on top of the safety standards. And RE Squared has a really great uh, approach to safety and Jorgen, You've been quoted by saying the following, by providing workers with robotic technology that can improve their safety, productivity, and efficiency, RE Squared Robotics will deliver more than innovation to its customers than it will the ability to deliver positively impact lives. You talk about that statement because it's, it's a powerful statement where you want to do good by society. Yeah, every company needs to have a purpose. Uh, our purpose is to make the world a, a safer place through robotics. And the way that we're doing that is by developing these intelligent mobile manipulation systems that empower humans to do their jobs safely and efficiently. Um, the impact of that is that we're reducing injuries. We are allowing workers to work longer in their careers by taking the wear and tear off of the human and putting it on the robot. Uh, we are increasing quality through consistency. We are providing workforce multiplication where skilled workers can oversee a system of robotics. Uh, and ultimately, we're, we're saving lives. You know, that's who we are. That's what we're about. What are some of the industries and use cases for your technology? Because some of the industries where I can see robotics saving lives are some things in the construction, uh, hazardous waste. Could you share some of those examples of where you're making that positive impact on society? Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll start from a high level and, and, and then give a couple of use cases. And Amanda, feel free to chime in with any thoughts you have too. But uh, at a high level, our systems are ideal for any job that's dangerous uh, whether it's prone to injuries or potentially death, any jobs that create wear and tear on a worker, causing them to retire early, uh, any job where you simply can't hire trained or skilled workers uh, fast enough to meet domain uh, and to meet uh, your need, to meet your schedule. Um, and you want to have uh, that uh, preserve that domain expertise, uh, of your skilled workers and have it be amplified through a system of robotics. Um, a couple examples, Defense was the early adopter of this technology and uh, because there's many dangerous jobs there. You think about uh, explosive ordnance disposal, dealing with roadside IEDs, uh, you don't wanna send a human into harm's way, you wanna render a device safe uh, you know, using robotics. Think about a combat medic just going out to tend to uh, a fallen soldier, right? It's a danger. If you could have uh, the capability to do that same function from a remote distance, perfect example of, uh, you know, the use of our technology. We're also in the medical space. We are uh, developing surgical robotic arms to allow surgeons to do their jobs faster and with higher quality. And this really reduces risk to the patient. Um, you, you know, less exposure time on the OR table as well as higher quality. Um, construction, another perfect uh, example, especially uh, at height where you have a strong need to remove human uh, from harm's way. You can think of putting uh, robotic technology in scissor lifts or uh, 
you know, uh, booms where, uh, you know, it's a dangerous job. I don't know, Amanda, if you want to add a couple more use cases to the list. Yeah. Um, so aviation is another space where there's a lot of jobs that are dangerous, such as inspecting aircraft at height and servicing aircraft in inclement weather. You can thank lightning strikes, uh, things like that. So we're really trying to put mobile manipulators in that space to help reduce the risks of those jobs and work alongside the human workforce to make their jobs easier and safer. Uh, energy is another example. So specifically solar field installation is a physically taxing job and may soon no longer be able to physically be performed by humans because PV panels, the uh, photovoltaic panels that are used out in solar fields are getting larger and heavier. Um, additionally, in the energy space, you can think of maintenance of the transmission lines. So uh, those are really dangerous jobs of people up working in the boom trucks, um, maintaining our power lines. So how can we put robotics in that space to keep those workers uh, safer and at a distance from harm's way? So there are really a lot of industries that can be benefit from intelligent mobile manipulation at this point in time. There's a couple of things that come to mind. There's this very famous photo. I believe it was either the Empire State Building or the Chrysler Building in New York City when they were building it. And you see the gentleman up there having lunch and you look down like 100 stories. That's an extremely dangerous job. And he doesn't have a, a harness in case he falls. Is that something today when we're building these skyscrapers that your robotic system could build so the humans not up there in jeopardy? Perfect application. Perfect, right? Humans should not be doing that job, right? Well, they should be doing that job, but from a safe location. You may still need the human intellect to do many of the tasks, and that's where teleoperation comes in. But I'm sure that there's some semi-autonomous uh, type of task where you can put a lot of the redundant, repetitive work on a robot, and a human's just overseeing the operations. But at no point are you putting a human's life in jeopardy. And another great thing to even build off our teleoperation conversation is if we can get uh, manipulators in these kinds of workforces, then you can use teleoperation to start learning about how to do those types of tasks. So at first, the human is doing the task, we're recording all of that data about how they do it, and then we use that information to teach our robots about how to do that job in the future. So building up the autonomous capability from human use. Another example that comes to mind, I live in Florida and we have lightning strikes and if it hits a power line and that thing's live on the ground, that creates a very dangerous environment that the robot manipulator arm can pick pick that up and basically save a life. It doesn't get into a puddle of water if a child's walking by or something, for example. Absolutely. Any, any, any job that you can think of where, hey, a human shouldn't be doing that. That's where we come in. That's, I mean, we're, that's, that is our mission and our purpose. It's another thing that I'm really proud of that, you know, with our men and women in the armed forces that you're, you're doing a lot to to save lives when they go into theater. And you developed and designed an autonomous rapid airfield damage recovery robotic system for existing vehicles for the U.S. Air Force. Could you talk about how you retrofitted an existing vehicle and, and what the purpose was that for the U.S. Air Force? Yeah, so we developed this robotic applique kit is the, the terminology they use within uh, the defense side, but uh, it's really a retrofit kit. So it's the ability to put this robotic system in the cab of any construction vehicle and turn that uh, unmanned asset into, uh, or that manned asset into an unmanned asset by it physically grabbing the the steering wheel, the pedals, the joysticks and hitting the ability to hit the buttons and the switches, all of that 
uh, is uh, done by physical interaction within the cab. And what's amazing about this is you can install this kit quickly within a few hours to put it in one vehicle, take that same kit out of vehicle one, put it in a vehicle two, which may be a completely different type of vehicle. Maybe it's in a, an excavator, and now I want to put it in a dump truck, or I want to put it in a telehandler. Uh, you can put that same kit into a new vehicle, and now you've turned that new vehicle into an unmanned asset. And what we've demonstrated so far is the ability to teleoperate that vehicle. And what we're doing under our current research is uh, extending it into more autonomous operations, such as, hey, we know that, uh, you know, on, on the, in the case of the Air Force, there was an airstrike and there's munitions out on the, on the airfield. We need to go clean them up. They're dangerous. So first you could go and you can teleoperate and a human can make the, the decisions on how to do that job. But then as uh, we advance, now we know that, hey, every time we know this is how you repair a hole on an airfield, you put the concrete in and you do this task. Uh, that's exactly what our system will be doing uh, in the more autonomous sense. Uh, you know, one, one uh, story to share there, uh, which, you know, also highlights the uh, importance and the versatility of this system is we were developing this technology for the Air Force. Uh, in particular, we were the uh, Air Force Civil Engineering Center, and uh, they're down at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. Hurricane Michael, you know, uh, comes through, devastates the base. They called us on a Friday night saying, hey, we need your stuff. Well, we're not completely done developing that. Don't care. We need your stuff. <laughs> so on Sunday, we're driving down to Tyndall Air Force Base, we install the system into uh, a telehandler and uh, they go and utilize this equipment to do uh, operations that uh, were interfaced with sensitive equipment. You can think of a hurricane hitting a, there's lots of objects and equipment that are very dangerous and sensitive on a military base. You don't want to send a human to do that job. So it was called to duty even before it was being, you know, it was a complete system and it worked. They were able to help with the cleanup activities from the hurricane. So there's another use case that we saw. Hey, it's a hazmat. It's a you know a relief uh, tool for uh, you know disaster relief. Um, so it was really exciting to see how this technology is being can be used for a defense opportunity. Hey, let's clean up this airstrike. Uh, let's we could use it for a, a disaster relief activity. But, oh, by the way, this is construction equipment. And the what's really cool about this is that, uh, you know, now we can start thinking about the construction in industry. You mentioned systems. So I, I have a, a young daughter. And the first thing that comes to mind, there was this really great children's book, If I Built a Car. And the child built a robot to drive the car. Are you kind of putting that robot in there to drive the car? Or, or what does that system look like? That's right. It, there's a robotic arm in there that can go and hit the buttons and the switches. There's a device that grabs a steering wheel if there's a steering wheel, or there's little devices that grab the uh, joysticks if there are joysticks. There's devices that hit the pedals. So it doesn't, it's not exactly an Android, right? It doesn't look like a human, but it has the same capabilities as a human, just as a uh, a more affordable variant of an Android, right? That you are able to uh, control the vehicle as if you were 
sitting in that vehicle. You're building Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all comes around now, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, so, Amanda, you're developing this, this robot that's going to be used in various situations. And I want to get into this in a minute about what you guys did in, in Fukushima. But you mentioned we mentioned the Air Force. And you're going into theater. You're going into combat where people are shooting at people. There's, there's not paved roads. There's rough terrain. Do you have to design that robotic system different for the environment that it's in? Yeah. So the systems that we develop for the military are typically part of research grant programs with very specific requirements. So whenever these programs get started, we always take the time to speak with individuals within the military that work in those areas, such as EOD technicians or army medics. And this allows us to understand the use cases and really their technology needs. So we're building up the specifications for our manipulators. So our systems, which are developed to keep the humans out of harm's way, right? They need to be hardened to perform those capabilities outdoors, regardless of the environment, the temperature, the terrain, any other parameters that we we may discover when we're talking to the people who would actually be in harm's way. Um, So we use all that to create requirements for our manipulators. And so they do need to be hardened, but more importantly, they need to be able to go into the specific dangerous situation instead of the human. So it's really specific to the project and the requirements coming from the actual users. And the company does a lot of, and we talked about this offline, but I think I love the sea and I I love the ocean and your arms are doing incredible work under the sea. So if you have a, one of your robotic arms is used in theater, one's used on a construction site and another one's used down the sea. Is that three different design elements because three completely different environments? So again, we approach every project with the customer's goals and needs and requirements in mind. Um, Whether we're developing a robotic system for underwater detection of objects or a solar panel installation, we make sure that we understand the application first before we begin the development process. So in some cases, it may be really obvious that we have an existing technology that we can take over to that particular scenario. And other times it may be more clear, a clearer path for us to reconfigure some of our existing technology. And then in other cases, maybe something that we don't have, but we know how to build and we know how to design and we take that on you know, as an additional aspect to that program. Research is really the key during the early phases of a project. And that's what allows us to ensure that we understand each use case within a very specific industry. And even within a specific industry, they have different problems. So you're the Geeves and Hawks of robotics. Geeves and Hawks on one salvo row makes some of the world's most incredible suits tailored to bespoke to the individual. And when you go in the in the cutting room, you just see some of the fabrics that they're used and some of the security elements. And so they're designed for that customer. And, and RE2 Robotics is saying, okay, Acme customer, we're going to develop it to your needs. So are you the Geeves and Hawks of robotics? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I mean, there's we, we have an amazing toolbox of IP, right? So uh, sometimes if you just want to buy what's on the rack, why, sure, here you go. But if you want the best uh, system that's ever uh, been seen on the planet, well, we could do that too. But we're going we're gonna to reach into our toolbox and start with that, right? So it's really building off of our core IP is the lion's share of uh, how, we tackle, how we tackle a problem. It's fantastic. In, in 2011, we had a, a, a huge global problem with the Fushuka uh, nuclear disaster in Japan. And RE Squared Robotics, you develop ro- robotics to, to clean up that. Could you talk about the role that robotics cleaned, 
played in cleaning up that nuclear waste? Yeah, so we we have a system called our highly dexterous manipulation system, uh, which is a two arm system that really does look like an an you know the the torso of a, a human, right? It, it's very android like looking. Uh, and then paired with that, we have an imitative controller. That's an intuitive uh, control device, which allows you to uh, control that remote, highly dexterous manipulation system as if it's an extension of yourself. So this is a teleoperated system, uh, but it's uh, uh, but it's highly intuitive. And the way that we measure intuitiveness is in two ways. One is uh, training time. It's about one minute to train someone on how to use it. Proficiency is other measure of intuitiveness and about one to two hours of stick time and you are becoming really proficient at controlling a 16 degree of freedom, highly dexterous robot. Uh, so that that's what we provided to uh, Fukushima to help. It was hung upside down. It wasn't designed to be hung upside down, but we hung it upside down on a, a crane inside of one of the buildings. Uh, it wasn't designed for a nuclear uh, uh, environment, but it was military grade. It was rugged enough that we, we had a hunch that it would probably just work. Uh, and two years later, we can confirm it works. They've been using it for the last two years. They've been doing cleanup activities, uh, uh, undoing plates to get access into other areas of the building, send other robots in to inspect. Uh, but eventually, as I understand it, once they're done with the cleanup and the inspection tasks, they're going to start dismantling that building from the inside out using those two arms. Because you essentially have a human being inside a building. So anything a human being can do, you can now do inside that building. But there isn't a human anywhere near the building. They're at a, at a safe distance uh, from the exposure. Awesome. So, Amanda, from, from your background and, and your incredible insight into this, how is it so easy to learn how to control one of these robotic arms, as Jorgen said, like within an hour? It's really impressive. Yeah, I think the key word there is intuitive uh, and imitative. So it's intuitive from the sense that you're literally wrapping your body around the controller and it's imitating exactly what you, you're doing. And so the more human-like the robot is, the more human-like the controller is, the easier it is to learn how to use. Fascinating. So if you're sitting down there, Jorgen, with an, with, an, with an individual and they just pick it up almost kind of like a video game, for example? Yeah, I, I mean, and, and that's how our arms made it to Fukushima is, uh, you know, we were at an unmanned systems uh, trade show. And, you know, someone from, uh, a, you know, a company researching potential solutions for the cleanup activities stopped by our booth. And we had the system there. We had a two-arm system, uh, you know, a highly dexterous two-arm system. Uh, we had an imitative controller there. And we brought people into the booth, said, you want to try it? And we trained people right there. On the, we let anyone try it. And within a minute... He was operating this thing and was able to lift a lot of weight with one arm, was able to perform complex tasks. I mean, you can unzip zippers. You can put the, you can undo a, a, the cap of a pill bottle. You can curl 50 pounds, right? It really is close to human capability. And seeing that live and uh, under, just understanding just how easy it is to use, I think is what caused that company to, in the end, ultimately select RE Squared over other companies they were looking at in, uh, you know, 
going to Fukushima to do this cleanup. Um, I think it's that military grade, rugged, reliable. This is not a PowerPoint presentation. This is real and ready for prime time now. Uh, that's what you know got our arms into that area. Wow. Whenever this pandemic's over, we'd love to come to your office, do an SAE on location, and, and make a video to show the world that you can that you can do the zipper, or you can you can open the the Coca Cola or the Pepsi. Would be absolutely fascinating because if you're that individual, I'm just thinking you're you're going to this conference and you see this, and how easy it is to work. Okay, you're you're writing the PO number and away we go. There's there's no hesitation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, seeing is believing, right? That's that's. That's the best recipe. Seeing is believing. And Amanda, I love to know, what, what does it look like when humans and robots are working together side by side? We've seen limited use cases today. Uh, but what does that look like as we expand more into the future? Yeah. So I think one of the interesting points about your question is for RE Squared, we're, we're looking at mobile manipulators and trying to take the human out of harm's way. So we're really not side by side when you're in the mobile manipulation space. Uh, where we're trying to work is really where humans are just a supervisor, that they're watching the robot do the job, or they're doing another job that's, you know, not in the workspace of the manipulator, and they're, you know, part of a team, and they're also just supervising. Wow. And and to in order to achieve that, are you developing all the hardware and software in-house so they perfectly complement one each another? Yeah. So RE Squared does both the hardware and the software. We build manipulators and write the code that makes the manipulators work. So the firmware, but we also do the application side of things. So where I live is the computer vision, the machine learning, the trajectory planning for the arm. We also do all our own user interfaces for our arm and all of our applications. So there's this whole level of software and hardware that occurs in-house. Uh, and because of that, over the last 20 years, RE Squared's built this extensive toolbox of technology. So that goes back to we can work with a bunch of different manipulators that have similar configurations that allows our software to be more extendable and our hardware to be more extendable. And this allows us to tackle a lot of different types of challenging problems from both the hardware perspective and the software perspective. It's, it's fascinating. And Jorgen, we've discussed a lot during this conversation. And one thing has come across from both you and Amanda, you're both deeply passionate about robotics. Star Wars had a profound impact on your life that led you to create this in incredible company. And you, you talked about the demonstration there with the gentleman from Japan. But how do we encourage children to, to learn about robotics and look at it as saying that robotics will have a positive impact on society? Yeah, so my, my, my number one recommendation is to explore both in school and out of school. Um, take things apart. So for any parents listening, if your child presents the innards of a toaster to you uh, someday, that's a wonderful thing. Um, there are so many opportunities to learn uh, via the internet now. Uh, you can watch like f the former uh, NASA engineer, Mark Rober, uh, to get inspired on you know how to build uh, in, on your own and how to do experiments or build robots. Um, even from a, a young age, there are great tools out there to build a foundation uh, and build confidence in STEM. Uh, there's a Scratch, which helps you with programming. There's Circuit Builder uh, games. Uh, there's Legos, you know, perfect way to s learn how to build in three dimensions. Uh, there's other uh, subscription type uh, 
opportunities like Kiwi Crate and Tinker Crate. You have Lego Mindstorms, Vex Robotics. Um, and I think another important aspect is once ki- tr- kids are older, you want to get involved with others who are interested in it, right? Be surrounded by other people that share your excitement about it because it just help, it, it, it amplifies it. Um, so join a Lego league, join First Robotics. Uh, if your school has a robotics club, become part of it, right? Uh, and even locally, we have something called Bots IQ here in Pittsburgh, which really fosters collaboration of building robots. And you can tell I'm pretty passionate about it. Uh, at RE Squared, we, we have a STEM outreach committee for the sole purpose of reaching out uh, and connecting with the community uh, to build excitement about a career in robotics because uh, robotics is the future. Yeah, I think the key thing is engagement. Like one of the things I've found uh, that encourages kids like my nephews to get involved in robotics is buy the toys that you think are cool and that you want to play with and then play with them with that cool toy because that will get them engaged and learn how to use like the robot puppy that goes left, right and goes through the maze because that's fun for me and then it'll be fun for them. Um, and I'll say, you know, we have a lot of people at RE Squared that were involved and are still involved in FIRST Robotics. And I think that that speaks volumes, right? They got involved, they were engaged, and now they literally work for a robotics company. So it, it really is working. It's fun. Uh, we do the Kiwi boxes at home. And for the, any parents listening, those things are absolutely cool. And, and for an adult, they're a ton of fun trying to figure out how to put these experiments together. And enjoy it. You write about robotics in school. I've seen my daughter's school this bumblebee thing where you have to program the spot so it has to go get the flower. And it's kind of, it's just introductory to program, but the kids have to do thinking there. And it's incredible what in-person education uh, does for our children. Jorgen, what does the future hold for robotics and RE squared in general? Uh, so r- robotics are going to be a, a major part of our world in the future. Um, and now there's finally a, a cultural shift of acceptance. Um, It'll be a while before we see strong industrial grade uh, robots in the general public. Um, But we're going to be seeing robots permeating markets where there's a controlled environment of skilled workers. So that whether that's an operating room, whether that's a construction site, a solar field, uh, up in the air with transmission lines, uh, airports, whether you're out on the apron or in the hangar, farms, those are going to be the applications that are first utilizing robots. Eventually, they're going to come into our homes more than a Roomba. But, uh, you know, safety needs to remain uh, paramount. So for the next uh, decade or more, we're going to be seeing uh, robots permeating those markets that I was talking about and those, those types of applications. And RE Squared is going to continue to bring the more human-like capability, both from a physical and a cognitive standpoint, uh, to uh, make these robots be affordable, reliable, and uh, useful. Uh, Amanda, as we look to wrap up this extremely insightful conversation, which has been extremely cool and super interesting, and for all the kids listening, you can learn a lot from listening to Amanda and Jorgen, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? Yeah. So in terms of autonomy, I just want to share everybody that autonomous robots are not about to take over the world. (laughs) But (laughs) uh, at RE Squared, we are seeking to improve the safety and quality of workers' lives in different areas through well-tested autonomous robotics. 
So maybe someday far, far in the future, but we shouldn't be too concerned about it right now. Jorgen, your thoughts, please. Yeah, I, I just go back to, uh, you know, my my last statement that, you know, robots are just going to be an integral part of our lives. And uh, there are tools to help society. They're, they're tools to do good. Uh, and, um, you know, the bottom line is robots are there to help humans do their jobs safely and efficiently. And that's our, you know, that's, that's what they're going to do. That's what we're about. And we're excited to be part of this uh, renaissance. Amanda, Jurgen, thank you so much for coming on the SAE podcast because tomorrow is today and robotics are the future. This has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Tune in next week to hear from Peter Anderson Sprecher, Chief Technical Officer at Fox Robotics, as he discusses the automation of warehouse logistics. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.